they're asleep now. Wow. That changes everything. to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 99 and 100, passing into the triple digits today. Woohoo! Those minutes begin with the Mariner making a promise he'll unwittingly keep, and end with Enola piggybacking underwater. Helen asks at the top of this clip, Is Dryland beautiful? And the Mariner responds by saying, You'll see. Once again, getting Helen's hopes up. It's kind of awkward when you're starting to make a connection with people and then you remember, oh yeah, I lied to them mm-hmm. days ago and I have no good way out of this lie. Well, crap. <laughs> so he just puts it off longer. Delaying the inevitable. The funny part about this is that he is going to eventually show her what he considers Dryland to be, but by the end of the movie, she is going to see Dryland. Yeah, and he very much helps them get there. So it's all an accident (laughs) (laughs) that he's right. Yeah, I don't know if you necessarily get the same amount of credit for accidentally fulfilling a promise that you made in... I I don't want to say made in bad faith. Oh, no, he made it in bad faith. Okay. I would like to take this opportunity to talk about this idea of giving the Mariner credit because... I have, up to the last few episodes, really disliked the Mariner because his behavior was so poor towards Helen and Enola. And now that it's starting to turn, he's starting to make a connection. We're starting to understand him a little bit more. It's really easy right now to forget how horrible he was to them before, to give him credit for how he's behaving now. And I do give him credit for how he's behaving now because he did turn his behavior around, but... He still is not done messing with them. Yeah, and he in no way, at least so far, apologizes or atones for his very abusive behavior prior to this. And just because your abuser starts being nice to you doesn't erase the abuse that they laid upon you earlier. You should still leave that person. Or at least seek reconciliation from them. Don't let them just get away with it. Right, right. He totally gets away with it. There is no that I know of. Maybe I'm wrong and we'll definitely see. But there is no atonement for his poor behavior. At the very least, an apology. Yeah. Not that hard. (laughs) understanding where he's coming from doesn't make it okay. Because if his behavior was less abusive towards them... I could see that. Like, uh, yeah, we're starting to learn about his crappy past. So the way he's overprotective about his boat and he doesn't like people. Yeah, I get that. But, oh, he was just so bad to them. I'm not ready to forgive him for those things. Mm -hmm. He has not asked for forgiveness. Therefore, I do not grant it. That is very fair. Yep. Helen seems satisfied with the conversation, though. Oh, I actually, (laughs) I didn't notice my first few watch throughs of this clip how she walks away. Yeah, she has a sort of smile on her face and she stands up from the jib and she puts her hand on it and almost swings around it. It's very charming. It is very charming. It's very light. 
she's happy. I think she feels a little bit unburdened by this conversation with him. Plus, according to what she believes, they are going to see Dryland incredibly soon. Yes. Her hopes are way up. Way so high up. <laughs> Helen walks away, and the Mariner sits there thoughtfully for a few more moments. He's got this piece of paper slash fabric yep. in his hand. That Helen gave him. And he opens it up and looks at it. We get a good look at it. It's not the same drawing. It's not the same drawing. It's not the same drawing. <laughs> the drawing that Helen took out of Enola's sleeping hand was of the Mariner and Enola swimming together, which hasn't happened yet. This drawing here is of the three of them like a family. Mm-hmm. Standing hand in hand with the Mariner, Enola, and Helen. Yes. Does this shake your clairvoyant theory? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I always knew that the picture of the Mariner and Enola swimming, that was a production error. I think it was really an editing error. That, that scene, that moment was supposed to come after the swimming scene. So clearly it was an error. I was willing to use it to prove my point about a clairvoyant aspect to it, but I don't think it's necessary. I'm still open to the idea. I'm not 100%. Like, I'm not saying I believe that <laughs> Enola is clairvoyant. I'm saying that it's a possibility that I like. This drawing does not break the continuity of the movie at all. And I'm a little bummed out that the version of the movie that we have doesn't use some sort of after effect trickery to put this drawing over the scrap of fabric that we saw in that earlier shot. Yeah. It is effort that would have to go into uh, it. But, yeah, it's effort. But it would have been nice. The next shot we get is the Mariner sitting on the bowsprit and he is silhouetted by the moonlight shining off the water. And it's not the first time we've had this shot because there was a shot like this last week that we didn't mention. But... These shots looking down at the water, they feel so different to me than the ones that are shot from a lower angle where you cannot see the moonlight reflecting off the water. These silhouette shots almost feel like they shot it during the day and just edited it to look like nighttime. Yes, I think they did. I grew up near the water. I have seen lots of ocean under moonlight. It doesn't look like this. <laughs> there is not that much light. It's very spread out. The moon just doesn't have that much light available mm -hmm. to shine off of the water. Now that you've said it, now that you've put it in my head, this is sunlight. Yeah, it looks weird. Yeah, they totally, totally just did day for night. Actually, it looks like they just turned it black and white. Yeah. <laughs> But we leave that shot behind as we cut below deck. We see a box with a latch on it, and the Mariner uses his knife to flick it open and dig through it. I want to duck into the book at this point. The Mariner made sure the woman was asleep. He let her have the cockpit for night quarters and ducked down into the recessed cabin of the main hull. He allowed the child to sleep in there, and she was curled up, soundly slumbering. Secure of his privacy, he opened a secret compartment along the wall and took out his most prized possessions, three dog-eared copies of a magazine called National Geographic. He knew how to read. His mother had taught him, the kindest human he'd ever known. So he pored over the sacred pages, not always understanding, but fascinated nonetheless by the articles. 
global warming a reality, death of the rainforests, pollution spiral, those in a magazine from 1999, our friend the atom, our marvelous freeways, exploring the reaches of space, from 1953, and best of all, the most ancient, from 1932, with his favorite article, his favorite pictures, up the Congo with gun and camera. One picture, however, haunted him. It clutched something in his chest and threatened the bittersweet joy he felt from the other photos. In a black-and-white photograph, a black native stood in pouring rain just outside a tent. In the tent, a white man, in an upside-down bowl of a helmet and short, childish pants, cooked a meal on a little stove. The caption read, Pity the poor native guide who must stand in the rain while Professor Matthews enjoys all the benefits of a modern gas-burning aluminum camp stove. Outside, the sky rumbled. The rain was coming. He needed to put his precious magazines away and gather containers to catch the hydro. Pity the poor native, he said softly to himself, and got on with it. First and foremost, I love the inclusion that it indeed rains, and he goes about collecting the water. Because we don't get that. We don't. We got the promise that it was going to rain tonight, and then we get a lot of moonlight. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I also appreciate that they stuck pretty closely to the image and the caption of the native man standing outside the tent because it does give us a little bit more than what we get in the movie. It just kind of guides us as to what's going on in the Mariner's head. Mm -hmm. I think I got there anyways that the Mariner, he does somewhat understand pity. And maybe he told Helen that he didn't because... He's got such a negative connotation of the word pity from that image that he didn't want to know what it was. He didn't want to tell Helen that he understood vaguely the concept. And also, the concept of pity based on that picture is incredibly negative. Mm -hmm. Incredibly negative. Whereas pity, based on the etymology that you were speaking of last week, is born from compassion. It's born from empathy. And feeling sorrow for other people's sorrow. And that's supposed to be a really good thing. And I think in our world, in our modern world, pity has also been twisted to be something degrading. Where you look down on someone. You look someone. down on somebody. You pity them. Yeah. I interpreted this as the Mariner didn't know what pity was because he specifically asks, what's pity and not what do you mean by pity? He's probably seen it in magazines like this, and either had not heard it said aloud to him, so he didn't have that connection between hearing the word and reading the word. So I imagine that he came down here and he's rifling through his pages because he probably figures, oh, wait, pity, I've seen that before. I've seen it here. And then he's able to piece together the meaning of the word. And I appreciate that because... He's not languishing in his ignorance. He's going to the materials that he has, and he's finding out for himself what these things mean. Yeah, he just gained another aspect of a context clue. Mm -hmm. He had one angle where this native man is standing outside in the rain while the white man gets to be inside cooking warm food conveniently. So... He's got this element of pity, but that maybe not necessarily isn't enough. So I think when he asked Helen what is pity, it kind of sounded to me a little bit defensive. 
Like, well, gosh, well, what do you mean by that? What, what is this thing that you have for me? In reality, he's like, oh, pity. I know that word. I don't know what it really means, but I've got a picture in my head that includes a person who is to be pitied. Yeah. So what does it mean? And it was a genuine question from him. Yeah. If, and she blew him off. If your only explanation for the word pity is a caption that says, pity this person standing in the rain because they're not in the tent. Yeah. Like, uh, do what to this person? Right. Like, does pity mean give them an umbrella? I don't know. Right. And to somebody who lives his life outside and has the option of being outside or inside, lives most of his life outside, this question between being out in the rain and in under the tent doesn't mean the same to him as it does to us because we live our lives inside. So we value inside more than outside. Mm -hmm. But he probably values outside more than inside. So I looked up a little bit of information about National Geographic. The first issue of National Geographic magazine was published on September 22nd, 1888, nine months after the society was founded. It was initially a scholarly journal sent to 165 charter members, and currently it reaches the hands of 40 million people each month. Starting with its January 1905 publication of several full-page pictures of Tibet in... 1900, the magazine changed from being a text-oriented publication closer to a scientific journal to featuring extensive pictorial content and became well-known for that style. In September 2015, the National Geographic Society moved the magazine to a new partnership, National Geographic Partners, in which 21st Century Fox held a 73% controlling interest. Then, in December 2017, Disney acquired 21st Century Fox including the latter's interest in National Geographic Partners, meaning that NG Media Publishing Unit was operationally transferred into the Disney Publishing Worldwide. Are you kidding? It's a Disney thing now? It is now a Disney product. Oh my gosh. Because everything is Disney. Everything is Disney. They are a monopoly. <laughs> Most products in this modern world are part of a larger family. A larger monopoly controlling everything from toothpaste yeah. to news media. Yes, it is. I didn't get a good count of how many magazines are shown in this, but in the book it does specify that he has three. One from 1930s, one from 1950s, and one from 1999. 1999. Which was the far-flung future in 1995. A whole four <laughs> years away. There is so much expectation that was heaped on the year 2000, and none of it came to pass. Okay, okay. I'm not disappointed. No, can I address that for a second? Yeah. So you're talking about Y2K. I'm talking about Y2K and just the world and ending in general. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the whole Y2K thing, it didn't happen because there was so much hype about it, because we worked hard to fix it. Right. That's why nothing happened. Where did I hear it? It's on a podcast, something like 99% Invisible, a podcast like that, if not that actual podcast, that talked to one of the guys who had a huge hand in fixing Y2K. And even he was like, look, we don't know for sure if it was going to be a problem, but we know that it wasn't a problem, partly because we fixed it. Mm -hmm. So for anybody who uses Y2K as an example of overblown public hysteria it's a poor example because we fixed it my first thought actually went to the movie that we watched for a hiatus episode 
1999 The Bronx Warriors, where that movie supposed that by 1999, the Bronx would be completely abandoned except <laughs> for themed gangs. That's right. <laughs> that future did not come to pass. In it did fact, not. the Bronx got gentrified. <laughs> yes, it did. It swung in the opposite direction. <laughs> But I do like how you get a good sense for the feelings of the decades through the titles that are mentioned in the book. You don't get as extensive of an examination of the headlines in the movie, but you do get to see one of the covers has a story about rising waters and climate change. Mm -hmm. And then in a snap, it's the next morning. The trimaran is sitting with its sail up, but not really moving anywhere. And as Helen wakes up, she realizes that Enola is nowhere to be found. And she runs to the back of the boat where she finds the Mariner and Enola swimming around in the water. And she's upset because she just saw the day before a gigantic monster come out of the water and swallow the Mariner whole. And so her first worry is those monsters will kill her. And the Mariner says, no, they're asleep now. For some reason, the Mariner insisting that they don't need to worry about whale fins because they're sleeping is a bit ridiculous and something that if they had included the dolphin clicking sounds in the trawling scene, they would more easily hand wave away. Yeah, this does feel awfully convenient. It's not like they caught the whale fin at night and now it's daytime, so it's asleep, so it's a nocturnal animal. We don't really know much about time of day. Well, we know this is morning. But why are they asleep? Why were they not asleep yesterday and asleep today? I agree. I think they should have included the clicking thing that specifically attracts them. I had to search through the book a little bit because the scene of the Mariner teaching Enola how to swim happens before the nighttime conversation. That's just how it is in the book. Mm -hmm. After dinner, Helen curls up. She takes a nap. And it says... Soon she was sleeping soundly, on her first full stomach she'd had since this ordeal had begun, and even before that, as food supplies at the atoll had not exactly been flush. A non-specific sound stirred her half-awake. She pushed up on an elbow. A blood-red sun was setting, turning the sea shades of glimmering crimson and gold. She settled back onto the deck and was just drifting off again when the sound repeated, and this time she recognized it. A scream! She sat up, flashing looks around the deck. No sign of Enola or the Mariner, for that matter. Another scream, a child's scream, Enola's scream, sent Helen to her feet. Out on the crimson gold water, the Mariner was swimming easily on his back, and Enola was gleefully sitting on his chest, riding along. The screams had been squeals, squeals of pleasure. The child was having fun, having a wonderful time, but that wasn't the point. Enola, Helen yelled frantically, what are you doing? Those monsters will kill you. They're asleep now, the mariner said, his voice barely audible above the gentle splash of his swimming. That felt more tedious than it needed to be, with her waking up and then drifting off and then waking up. Wow. No. This, okay. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> okay. As someone who appreciates naps after a meal. Yeah. Is this very relatable? Yeah. You have a big meal. Your stomach's full. Yeah. Time to take a nap. Time to take a nap. <laughs> Absolutely. I like the placement of this immediately after the meal because it just seems more immediate to 
the Mariner and Enola having that connection of, oh, I wish I had feet like you because then I would be able to swim. I've never met someone who didn't know how to swim. And so after the meal, Helen takes a nap and the Mariner decides, well, I guess I'm going to teach you how to swim now. Yeah, it makes so much more sense. Instead, what we get in the movie, it feels like the swim lesson is a result not of him and Enola's conversation about swimming, but as a result of him and Helen's conversation about her origins and what people think of her and him discovering that they have more in common than he thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I prefer the way it is in the book because of what you just mentioned. Yeah. That it was Enola connecting to the Mariner that brought him more amiable to their plight. And it's the conversation with Helen here at the night that pushes him back towards maybe getting rid of them at the next trading post. Because with Enola, it was all like, I'm weird, you're weird, I wish I could swim, you can swim. And then with Helen, it was, I pity you. You don't know what compassion is. Negging him just a little bit. Yes, yes, she was negging him. Once we move on to the next set piece, things don't go great with the interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. There is friction. Yes. That arises. That feels out of place. But if things had been rearranged a little bit, I think, yeah, I think the flow would have been nicer if they'd been rearranged a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I would ever go back and re-edit the cut. (laughs) But if I could. I'm a little surprised that since there is a fan edit, that they allowed this to happen. I'm not sure that Enola has the tattoo on her back in these swimming scenes. Really? It's hard to tell. It's very hard to tell. But I've got it frozen on her back, and her shirt thing is written very high up, and you still can't see the tattoo. But it could totally be there. I just can't see it. This is really the introduction to the swimming scene. We have a whole bunch more swimming next week. So I'll definitely be keeping my eyes out, see if I can spot it. Oh, for sure. For sure. It wouldn't surprise me that they wouldn't do that makeup for these scenes if it's not there. I know for the story, this swimming scene is important because it is laying the groundwork for the Mariner when he goes after Enola to save her from the smokers. There's a line where he says that Enola is his friend. So this is laying the groundwork to justify that relationship. They are spending time together. He is teaching her about the world and not just in a, you kids these days need to listen to the sound of the world. (laughs) They're sharing an experience, uh, some sort of common activity that they can look back on later on. And I understand the importance of it. And I appreciate the inclusion of it in this story. However, the way it is shot seems a little indulgent. Oh my gosh. It is. So we have over about a minute of our clip this week is the swimming scene. But there's so much more in next week's clip that we're going to talk about the swim lesson next week. Yeah. There's a solid 30 seconds where the Mariner instructs Enola where to put her hands specifically around his neck. So she doesn't like drift off or anywhere. And then for the rest of this clip, it's just them diving and Helen watching them swim around. Yep. So what do you make of the folksy wisdom of let the water tell your arms and legs how to move? 
Okay. <laughs> like, in your experience of being in water, have you ever let water tell your arms and legs how to move? <laughs> I actually have once. We were swimming out on the outer shores of Cape Cod. Now, my ocean experience is generally with not open ocean. I grew up on Long Island Sound, so the waves are relatively small to non-existent out there. And then we would go up to Cape Cod, and again, the beaches that we would frequent weren't open ocean beaches. They were like facing Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and whatnot. Anywho, so we go out to proper facing Europe, next land is that far, ocean. The waves were huge. They were huge. And you couldn't even get in the water because the undertow would just take you. And that's when I let the ocean tell my body what to do. And it was to flip me upside down and scrape me against the bottom of the ocean. That's what it told me to do. <laughs> and then I so struggled still... to get out of the water and didn't go back in. So you were still fairly close to shore then? Oh, yeah. This is okay. where the waves were breaking. I was a child. The adults who were big enough and tall enough to get past to the waves, once you got past where they were breaking, it was fine. But as a small child, not that much older than Enola, maybe, I don't know, 11 or 12, my body did what the water was telling me to, and that was <laughs> to drag me across the floor. I don't think that's what he meant, but no. I appreciate that. Uh, it's crap. The story. It's complete crap. It's hokum. Yeah, like... The ocean doesn't care that you need to breathe. The ocean doesn't care that you have somewhere you want to go. No, you need to tell your body what to do. You are in charge of your own body. The ocean is not your friend. No. The ocean is your enemy, your and opponent. This is coming from the point of view of a man who the ocean is his friend. He can just do whatever the ocean tells him to because it won't kill him. So... It's crap. It's crap. <laughs> He's full of crap. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because it, like, it's so dumb. It's, it really it's is. It's poetic and it sounds lovely. Oh, uh, it looks great on paper. Yes. Just let the but, water tell your arms and legs how to move. But anybody who has actually swam in the ocean knows it's not true. Oh, you remember we went out to. Plum Island once. Yep. And we got in the water. Yep. And that is a beach that faces out into the open into ocean. Into the open ocean. And me, I have experienced swimming. I have experienced ocean swimming. I was frightened that we were not going to be able to get out of the water. Thinking back, it was very scary. Yeah. Swimming out at Plum Island. <laughs> yeah. The ocean's trying to kill you. Don't listen to it. Oh my gosh. On that note, <laughs> I don't know how we can continue. <laughs> You mentioned before the word indulgent. I think this scene is overindulgent. It's still lovely, though. I think it is appropriately indulgent. Oh, you think it's appropriately indulgent? I think so, because really? it is It is so important that we have this as a milestone in the movie to look back on, so that way when the Mariner does state that Enola is his friend... It's justified. This is what we think of. Okay. This is the time that we cast our minds back to. When they were being friends. Yep. Not when he was yelling at her because she took his crayons and drew all over his boat. Not when he seemed to be making fun of her 
about being a weirdo on the atoll, not seeing her as a burden and cutting all of her hair off. No, we need to think of this scene where he is being kind and nurturing, teaching her his ways as a fish man. (laughs) I suppose that this scene does need to be long enough to erase our memory. (laughs) There needs to be more of the good stuff than there was of the bad stuff. And considering the bad stuff went on for so much longer that they had to put so much time into this swimming lesson scene. So much time. Well, let's put a pin in things for this week. Come back next time. We'll see Enola's swim lesson continue. Helen will possibly start thinking the Mariner isn't such a bad guy, and the Trimoran will approach a trading post. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 50. We'll see you next time.